Our guest today is Sam Benjamin. Uh, Sam, like my own uh, dear late grandfather, may his uh, memory be blessed, and my own grandmother, comes from the Baghdadi Jewish community, uh, formerly of India and Burma. Sam, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Um, you were born just after uh, India achieved independence. Correct. And you spent the first 18 years of your life in India? That's right. So I'm, I'm very interested in uh, the community that was there, specifically like the Baghdadi Jewish community and how um, that the transition worked for, through India and Burma, and also in the, the various ways in which, um, I guess, Jewish culture and Baghdadi culture interacted with Indian culture and what was left of British culture at the time. Firstly, I can only comment on the Indian culture because I know nothing of Burma. Okay. I understand that the Burmese, a lot of them, the Jews of Burma, migrated from Burma to Calcutta. There was very little reaction, interaction rather, between the Bombay and Calcutta Jews. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, I can only talk about my childhood or my youth in, in Bombay, India. Okay. And Bombay is on the west side of India? Bombay is, yeah, the west side, middle, actually, bank smack in the middle of India. Okay, whereas Calcutta on the east side is closer east, to Burma. Closer to Burma, closer to uh, Darjeeling and the north part of India, the Himalayas and all that sort of stuff. It's more what closer to Bangladesh, if you can picture that, which was then known as East Pakistan. Mm -hmm. uh, it was only after that the uh, people of East Pakistan rebelled and they broke away from East Pakistan because when the British partitioned India, they broke India into India and Pakistan. And they had West Pakistan, which is Pakistan today, and East Pakistan, which is Bangladesh today. So uh, the Bangladeshis wanted their own country and they broke away from being part of East Pakistan. It was a very strange, and I always recall this as a child, while you had West and East Pakistan and all the control of Pakistan was from the West, where mm -hmm. the, uh, Karachi was the, uh, Islamabad rather, was the capital how could they manage a country so many thousands of miles away in the east? It was totally crazy. So when you were young, Bangladesh was still part of no, what pa West Pakistan. It was, it was, it was, it still, was part east, of East Pakistan. Right. Okay. I, and, and do you remember when Bangladesh got independence? I don't know remember the exact date, but uh, I think it was somewhere in the 70s, but I was already in Australia then. You had already left India. I already left India. So from, from your time in India... Um, from, from what I've gathered uh, from, from your stories and, and from photos you've shown me, uh, you used to sing in the choir there. I, yeah, uh, basically I belonged to different youth movements. Mm -hmm. One was the Scouts as a young boy. Then I always went to Habonim, which is the, uh, uh, it's a, Jewish youth movement that is formed in Israel and then Bene Akiva. Bene Akiva is more orthodox, whereas Haboni was sort of, um, I wouldn't say liberal, but uh, in India there was no such thing as liberal. Mm -hmm. You're either orthodox or you're not orthodox. <laughs> right. But um, basically, everyone who went to Habonim, Habonim had started uh, basically in the early 40s, whereas Bene Akiva only came to being. In about 1956, 1954, mm -hmm. when they sent a Sharia from Israel to form Bnei Akiva in India. Hmm. So it's a it's a, uh, it's basically aligned to Israel's uh, youth. You know, it's, a, it's very pro-Israel sort of uh, sure. Yeah. A Zionist youth ha group. Ha Zionist youth group. That's it. Habonim is the builders. Bnei Akiva. This basically is following the teachings of Rabbi Akiva. Mm -hmm. So uh, later in my life, I joined Bin Akiva because when they first came, uh, the Sharia from Israel came to India, I didn't want to have a part of Bin Akiva mm -hmm. uh, because I was all of eight or nine years old at the time. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to play around and they were having their classes on a Saturday afternoon, whereas I would rather play on the school grounds. And I still recall one very particular day when my sister was getting married this was 1956. Mm -hmm. The Shirley saw me dressed up. He said, what are you doing here? I want you up in the class. I said, my sister's getting married. No, 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 go to the class. Your sister will get married later on. 
So I went to the, went to the back of the school, went up to the class and ran out. So I would not see him again. Because uh, he was trying to force me to go there. Hmm. That was on a Saturday? It was on a Sunday. Sunday. It was Sunday afternoon. So, so Benekiva had classes on Saturday and yeah, Sunday. Yeah, we would get together on Sunday afternoon. Right. Uh, it was only when I turned about 14 years old that I joined Bini Akiva seriously and I sort of became a youth leader over there as well, part of it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, went to camps in Bini Akiva. Um, I had a sort of a mischievous streak about me. I don't think I've changed. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so, uh, you know, we'd go to camps and I'd be the first one to go there to sort of uh, having my scouts... Um, background to set up tents whenever we had a camp that we had tents and uh, whatever hmm. I'd be sort of going with the Sharia early to set up everything over there uh, probably four or five days before the actual group came back fantastic so, so you'd have like some good time in nature without correct, correct. without all the, the hubbub there was one one camp that really strikes in my mind uh, where we were building tents uh, it was down south in Bangalore mm-hmm. uh, Bangalore is now the seat of the computer center of India. Hmm. Uh, and but we, not at the time. Hmm? But not at the time. Not at that time, no. But we sort of set up the tents, and you wouldn't believe it, that day we set up the tents, it was torrential rains. And everything was getting blown away, and there's sand in the rain. You know, we had these uh, artificial, not artificial lights, but lights with gasoline. Mm-hmm. And I was digging trenches around the, the tents in the rain, soaking wet to allow the water to flow so we won't get into the tents. It was uh, sort of horrendous. And, you know, there were a few of us, we walked at night dark and there would be snakes and scorpions. Oh my. <laughs> you know, one night I still remember we were all going for a walk and suddenly there in the distance we had torchlights, we were shining and we saw a snake pass by, we just walked away, went somewhere else, you know, and it was uh, interesting. Did you ever encounter any, any bigger predators in India when you were camping? No. 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 But, but to get back to this, um, to your participation, so you, you were into the Jewish youth movements in general, B'nai Akiva and Habanim, and was that related to your, to your service in the choir and the synagogue? Yes, when part of B'nai Akiva, that's when uh, I got involved with the choir and the synagogue, with the B'nai Akiva group. Mm-hmm. We used to sing at weddings, and what would happen is there was a guy who was in charge of, of us, he wasn't a choir master per se, but he used to organize, he used to take the payments from the um, family who would want us to sing at the wedding, mm-hmm. and then would take us out for a treat or a movie or something, so we didn't have to pay for it. Bear in mind, we had no money. Mm-hmm. So what we sang in the choir was whatever we got. Right. He would spend on us to take us to the movies, or, because movies was a big thing there in India. You know, you know we'd go and see the movies in the picture house, and it was a big thing for us. So, and back in the day, they used to have, if I recall correctly, a bit of like world news before the film starts? That's correct. Yeah, they always had a prelude to that. So it was very short, but you know, keep you... Was, was there anything, with any of those preludes that stick out in your mind now? One that sticks out in my mind, my oldest brother was in the cadet corps. Mm-hmm. And one of those news, they were showing these guys marching. And I saw my brother marching with them. And he was right at the front where everybody eyes turned right and he had to look straight. Mm-hmm. And I can still vividly picture that, that shot. I said, that's my brother. Screamed out in the movie. <laughs> you know, it was quite amazing. And wow. I asked him later, I said, yeah, yeah, I was there at that, at that march. You know? So what are the cadet corps? It was part of, part of the Navy. It was the youth, like a youth uh, Navy thing. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and, and you're, so you used to, used to sing in the choir and you'd go and, and see some movies sometimes off it. Was that, um, that, that wouldn't have been your first, uh, I guess, taste of Sephardi music though. You would have had that from much earlier. No, no, no. The taste of Sephardi music was uh, when I was a child of eight or nine. I mean, uh, uh, go to synagogue and you hear the chants and the Hazan singing or whatever mm-hmm. and we picked up the tunes and I also had a Hebrew teacher come to me uh, every day for 20 minutes we had to learn to first read Hebrew then he taught us the cantillations how to apply the tunes and as I grew older I sort of moved out of that and my mother took over because my mother was very learned in that sort of mm. uh, all the Iraqi tunes and all that uh, later on uh, 
as I matured a little bit more, I went to my teacher, my original Hebrew teacher, and asked him if he would teach me the cantillations of Tehillim, which I loved. I really hmm. loved. So that's different from the cantillation of the Torah? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. The Torah cantillations, the symbols are the same for the same cantillations that you would use for Nebi'im and Ketubim. Mm -hmm. But they apply differently. Mm -hmm. You know, they apply differently. Now, when I finished with my Hebrew teacher, I came to the point that I could read Nebi'im with the tunes, the Iraqi tunes. The cantillation is the same, but you apply them differently. Right. Now, I'm not musical, and I don't profess to be musical, but it was just hearing and following and understanding. And one of the important things is that we learned what the symbols were and how you applied each symbol. Mm -hmm. Basically, it was by heart. And uh, uh, for example, the Zaraka is like an S, upside down S. Mm -hmm. And we learned to apply that, it was very, very cleverly done because they call it Zaraka and they applied the tune to it. So if, for example, if you said the tune of Zaraka goes Zaraka, so you could use that for anything else. Shemuel, Yehazkel, and that's how we learned it. Hmm. If you follow what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. So it's a word, Zaraka comes from the word basically, uh, it, it, it symbolizes a sprinkler and if you look at it, it looks like a sprinkler as well. Mm -hmm. So we memorize those symbols and then we sing the actual note, we apply it to the word. Right. And that's how it is read even today mm -hmm. in, the, in the Torah. So those same symbols, we had to memorize how it's applied in Nevi'im and how it's applied in Ketuvim. Right. And particularly with... Uh, uh, the book of Esther, it's applied slightly differently as well. Hmm. Yeah. And Tehillim has similar symbols, but they are put in different spots. But once you master it, it's not too difficult to, to, to understand how it works. Sure. So after, as I said, this time came, my, my teacher offered that I would go every Saturday after synagogue and practice with them Tehillim and he taught me how to apply the tunes and it just stuck in my mind. Was that a common, because this is something I've, I've noticed, I guess, growing up around you and, and seeing you at the Safadi synagogue, you're very into your Safadi music, yeah. you're very aware of it and you love it a lot. Was that common or were you unusual in your in your love of the music? I, I would say uh, whilst I follow the tunes, uh, what it was initially, I evolved to my own little variations. Mm -hmm. I put my own spin to it, if you know what I mean. Sure. In other words, uh, I felt that if you just follow the tunes the way it is, it gets very boring. So I adapted my own little spin to it. And mm -hmm. in particularly, the Serihot uh, melodies. Um, they are very distinct and very sh straight. But what I have done is while I've not changed the, the basics and the, the, the fundamentals of it, I've applied a little variations of my own drive to it, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. Would it be possible for you to give us a demonstration of maybe the default and then how you do it, sing it a bit differently? Yes, I can. For example, in the Seleo tune, which the Kolin uh, de is very dear to me and I've been in every year for for over 40 years hmm. because I read it and I get a thrill because I know when I conduct that part of the service in the Sephardi synagogue I can feel I've got the congregation responding to me because it's coming from the heart yeah it's coming from my heart and I really feel what I'm saying over there you know if you know what I mean so it's the Seleo is a interaction between the reader and the congregants and I can feel the unison of the congregation when I'm singing that and I can feel they're responding to my feeling if mm. you know what I mean it's very hard they're me. very present with the song they're yeah. very present with yeah. you while you sing it yeah. I, I think I guess a lot of the time um, especially with prayers that we do a lot it's very easy to sort of be half in and half out and be right. thinking about yeah. the next thing yeah. But, but Yom Kippur I, is very... I, I, I believe I, I capture the congregants at that point in time. Hmm. No, I can feel it because 
some of the melodies, for example, like we read the Shema on it, and I can feel that they all are singing with me, and they're, they're feeling it as well. I get that feeling myself. Mm. And I really enjoy that, because I know that I've, I've got them feeling to feel the awesomeness of Kolodrenai. That's beautiful. Can, can, could you, I'm, I'm very interested in, in hearing this, could you give us an example of like, maybe, maybe from the Shema or from something else in Siddhachat, like sing a line first exactly by the textbook and then say, okay, that's the textbook okay. and then give us one I'll give you with one your twist. I'll only, which I know by heart. So, Shomea Tevela Adecha Kol Basar Yavohu Now, my spin on it. Shomea Tevela If you notice, there's a mm. slight difference, it's not very much, but the basic is still the same. Right. So you've kept the same sort of topological form of it, but you you add a little more flair on the in the middle notes. Correct. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that's that's just an example of. Do you, do you ever do you ever run afoul of the purists? Does anyone ever come up to you and say, why did you do the note this way rather no, than this in fact, way? No, they, they, they come and compliment me. They love it. Yeah? Yeah, yeah? That's good. Because bear in mind, in Sydney, a lot of people <coughs> sorry, don't know much of the tunes. Right. I mean, a lot of them are the young that have been brought up here or, or, or they've never been exposed to that. Yeah. So they, they, the <coughs> Iraqi melodies... <clears throat> Once we are gone, if I don't teach it to the young, it's lost. Yeah. In, in, in Australia. And I hope it's not around the world. I've become, I've become more and more aware of this in the past few years because I think, I, I guess I spent a lot of time uh, around my grandfather growing up and, and his congregation. And I used to, like, the sorts of, the sorts of things that I take for granted, um, they're really, they're really, they're not in the in the air in the same way as, as it seems like they were back in India, you know, where everyone's just Correct. picking them up. Yeah. In, in India, you if you're very red boy, you would have said, hey, stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but as I said, uh, there was a professor of music, uh, or actually she was a director of Monash University called Margaret Khartoumi, Professor Margaret Khartoumi. Hmm. And a few years ago, quite a few years ago, she came to Sydney and she heard me conducting a silly road service on a Sunday morning. And she said, do you mind if I interview you? And I said, no. And she came to my house and we talked about it. And, you know, and we formed quite a, a bond with that. Yeah. And she did a paper about the various music because she interviewed people from Bombay, from Singapore, uh, and different uh, Hazanu. Mm-hmm. And um, I still recall her comments because she says, Whilst I've kept the basics, the basic tune there, I put my own spin to it, which is good because it gets too monotonous and too boring. Mm. And I was surprised at myself, to be honest with you. Uh, because, uh, and she says, it's a good thing because mm. you, didn't, you didn't, haven't lost the, 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 the basics of what those beautiful melodies are, but all you've done is added a bit of spice to it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. I, I mean, I, I think that's a very, that's a very Sephardi thing in itself, adding yeah. a bit of spice to a good dish to make it a little better. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, from that point of view, uh, um, I try to put a little bit of my own spin to it because it is, it is not that I'm deliberately doing it, it's the way I feel when I pray. Yeah. It's, it's a feeling that comes from within me, if you know what I mean. And I'm... I'm bashful to even say this, but I get a lot of compliments that people like my tunes. And, and the melodies that I've adopted, and I've said this to a few people, goes back to the time when my father passed away. And we had this guy who would come and pray in the house because there the mourners would sit for seven days in the home. And I was all of eight years old when my father died, almost nine. But um, And I remember when he would conduct the Mincha and Arvid services, I'd go into the side room. Well, I mean, we had a small house, a flat. I wouldn't even call it a house because it was partitioned. The room was partitioned. And I'd go over there and I'd quietly cry because it was so beautiful. The melody was so beautiful. This was during the services for your father? Yeah. 
Mm. I just cry. And to me, the vision was also that an eight-year-old boy, I'd stand at the window and I'd always look out to see where the sun was setting. Mm. And to me, when, when the sun was setting, I would see, I think that's where my father is gone as an eight-year-old child. Mm. That was in my mind. I still etch in my mind. I can still picture the, the red sun at, looking out of my window to my right, which was the uh, setting sun. And I picture that and say, I think that's where my father is gone as a child. Mm. But that impression stayed with me and unbeknown to me, unbeknown to me, when I was in the Binyakiva movement, we were encouraged to conduct services. So what we did was within the school, uh, in the school uh, building, we'd go to one of the classrooms and we'd conduct um, Kabbalah Shabbat and Shabbat services because the congregation was in the synagogue. The synagogue and the school were all on the same grounds. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to conduct our own services and it was a way of encouraging us young kids to take over. Mm -hmm. So we would conduct our own services over there. So from that point of view, we learned to build confidence within ourselves to undertake the challenge of being a chazan without having musical knowledge. And we would vary it among different guys, myself, my friend, my brother. And each time I would conduct the service, this same guy that I was talking about who brought tears to my eyes as a child, his son was in Israel and a few years later on, he came back to Bombay for a short stint. And we were very good friends. We, we, we became very good friends. And, and camps, you and his son? Yeah. And I'm still friends with him because when I go to Israel, I always meet up with him and his wife. His wife was my neighbor in Bombay. Wow. Went to the same school. You know. Tiny world, huh? Yeah, very small world. So we always catch up with him. And I still recall his comments to me. He says, you know, your cues are very similar to my dad. I, I wow. was actually taken aback. I was shocked. Not that I like to copy somebody. But he says, you've got your own variation to it. I was completely taken aback with that because... That must have been etched in my mind as a child. Now, I'm talking eight years old. Now, I'm conducting services at the age of 16, 17 in Bombay. And that's when he made the comment? Yes. Wow. Right. Unbeknown to me. You know. That's beautiful. So, so, he said, but you've got your own sort of unique thing, but I can still picture some of the commonalities over there. So even at 16, 17, you already had your unique flavor to it, your own spin? Uh, yeah, I always had my own spin. Mm. It, it's, I find it really interesting to think, I guess this is sort of um, more broad, but to think about the, um, the idea of uh, how with, with any craft, with any discipline, so much of it is, is um, rigorously drilling the basic rules and the basic techniques Absolutely. so that you're very clear on them and then once you really understand them then you can you can go a bit this way about a bit that way it's the same thing like a singer might pick up a song hmm. and you you can picture that he's varying it a little bit it's not exactly what it was the original music and he'll put his own spin to it right he'll either extend something or he'll add something in between or you know he'll, he'll do that i've noticed that with a lot of uh singers and they're putting their spin on a song, they add their own sort of spice to it. Yeah. And as I said, this was a comment that's come from a professor of music from Marvel Kaktumi. And unbeknown to me, it was only years later that I saw this writing and she mentioned me uh, in it, uh, you know, uh, but she, she always called me Benjamin, not Sam, but, you know, because she referred to, and, and actually there was an interview with her on one of the radio stations and she talked about that. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. So I, I wanted to swing around to something you mentioned earlier. You said you had a bit a bit of a uh, mischievous streak to you. Always, I haven't changed. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I feel like that's maybe a bit of mischief is one of the um, one of the secrets to staying young. My late wife would always tell me, Sam, when are you going to grow up? And I said, never, mm -hmm. because uh, I'm always playing a prank or a joke or you know a subtlety or something like that. I did that. Uh, it, even as a child, uh, I, I recall one of the comments that was made uh, and my sister-in-law reminds me of that comment because she was part of this whole thing. 
I'll explain to you something. My wife, my late wife, is actually the niece of my brother-in-law. Mm-hmm. Right? So I knew her from Bombay, but they were living in more of a little higher class area than where we were. We were more like the, the, the very poor area of Bombay, and they were sort of upper class. So whenever they would come to our area, I would always know that she was very close to my brother-in-law. And my brother-in-law was very close to my late wife. Mm-hmm. Now, my brother-in-law's... Hang on, I need, I need a, bit of a, a bit of a diagram here. This is, so your sister's husband, Correct. he had a niece that you had a, that you had a bit of a fancy for. No, I, I didn't have a fancy for her in Bombay, but I've had a fancy for her when you, she came to Australia. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then we got married. A very successful fancy, it seems. <laughs> But um, her sister, this is my late wife's sister, yeah. would always relate to me a story because my brother-in-law's sister, now picture this, my brother-in-law's sister, her name was, her name is Maud. Maud, and, that's, and that was Kathy's mother or aunt? No, Kathy's aunt. Okay. Kathy's aunt would tell Kathy's sister, we are going to Baikala. We're going to Flory's house. That's my sister's house. That's my house. Hmm. And she says, Florrie's got a brother, Sammy. He always called me Sammy. Hmm. Now, he doesn't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> so, just be aware that he will talk on any topic at any time. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> so, it is only after I was married that Sally would tell me, you know, what Maud said about you? I said, no, I never knew. Because she said, we're going to Sammy's house or, or Flory's house and the Sammy will not shut up. <laughs> so, you know, uh, I used to, being the second last in the family of nine, yeah. uh, I was a little bit, I would say spoiled, but uh, not so much spoiled, but uh, I had to fight for everything. You know what I mean? That's sort of the opposite of spoiled. Yeah, well, I had to get my way because, you know, uh, I my sister was two years older than me, my brother was four years older than me, and so on, you know, each one was... It's easy one. for you to get forgotten in the in the pecking order. So I always wanted right. to make myself known where I am. Right. So that's where I would always give people tongue-in-cheek, you know, so, uh, you know, stand up on my rights, etc. I haven't yeah. changed, <laughs> but There's, I think I've mellowed. <laughs> there is a, um, a particular prank um, that I'd, I'd love for you to tell over, the one involving the lemon and oh. the musicians. <laughs> Oh, when we get to family, they always tell me, Sam, tell us the story. Well, uh, when we lived exactly opposite us, there was uh, uh, like a housing commission place. Mm-hmm. There was one bedroom and families would live there. It was basically the Hindus. Mm-hmm. And the family of eight, nine in one room. Mm-hmm. And every so often, there were um, occasions when there would be a wedding. And... Sometimes the weddings would happen when just bang smack before my exams were coming on. And you had these bands that would come and they play, they had these loudspeakers. If you can picture uh, being in India and these brass bands that are coming and they're playing music, you know, all the time and loud music, etc. And I'm trying to study and I can't study. We had a guy in the same block of flats that we were living in and he said, Sam, you want to stop them? I said, how can I stop these guys? So he says, I've got an idea for you. I said, what? We had a common wall. So he said, why don't you sit on the wall, cut yourself a piece of lime, and squeeze it in your mouth right in front of the guy that's playing the, the trombone and the clarinet and all that, you know, those guys are doing it, and just squeeze it and pretend you're enjoying it. A lime or lemon? A lime. Lime. In India, you never, you, lemons were basically very small and very juicy. Lemons or limes? Lemons, limes, whatever you call them. Okay. Lemons, okay. So there I am sitting on this wall and these guys are playing, pom, 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 and I take this line and squeeze it. And suddenly I realize that these guys are looking at me, they can't miss me because my eye, I'm sitting right in front of them. Yeah. So, hot day, they are building saliva in their mouth. And as a result, they can't blow anymore. They're boom, boom, boom. <laughs> so they put down that stuff and they chase me. Now, in my fear, 
instead of jumping into my side of the building, I jump onto their side. But luckily, I was a fast runner. I ran all the way into the synagogue ground, which was around the corner from us. So they couldn't come into that because that was a restricted area for them. So uh, you managed to get away. I managed so, to get away. So the the idea behind it was that as you as you um, squirted the, the the juices into your mouth, they sort of sympathetically started salivating, yeah, and then they couldn't operate their instrument. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really wonder about this because you're not you're not um, from amongst my 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 dear late grandfather Lias Neshami Cheskel Chayakohen Ben Sacha, um, his cohort. You're 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 not you're not the only one who's given to a good prank here and there. I think it, there there is there seemed to be a sort of um, cultural more than a tolerance, even a celebration of that sort of thing. Our pranks were not destructive. Mm. They were pranks, but they were not destructive. They were playful. Yeah, playful. Yeah. They were not destructive at all. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we used to do, we used to go along um, the railway lines because there was a stream over there and there used to be guppy fish and tadpoles and we used to go to catch them with a net and put them in little jars with water. Hmm. And sometimes we were so stupid, absolutely stupid, crazy. <laughs> we actually, instead of staying on our side of the the, the stream, we would go actually on the train tracks. And suddenly you see a train coming and you didn't know that it's going to change tracks because it's, oh, it's on the other track and suddenly it's changed tracks and it's right near you and you just jump back in there. And one of the, not one of us, but one of the uh, Christian boy that was there got hit by Yikes. it. So we were daredevils. Yeah. Dead devils. Yeah. We used to fly kites and we used to have um, combats in the air. Yeah. And when the kite was cut off, we'd run on the street, not looking whether a car is coming or not, to catch the kite. Right. It was cut off. You know, these were stupid things that we do. I used to ride my bike and I used to get behind a, a, a lorry. You can imagine the traffic in Bombay. I can't, but. <laughs> just picture I'm holding onto the chain of the lorry, so I didn't want to pedal. And I'm. Piggy bang on, on him, he's pulling me. And suddenly I know that now I've come to my spot, I've got to let go. I let go and the sky's coming from every side. You know, crazy, crazy. Wild times. But, but I'll, I'll tell you one incident that yeah. uh, also rocked me when, when we go to camps, we went to what we call hill stations. So they had what they call a toy train. We call it a toy train, it wasn't, but it was a very slow train that would go, one track train that would go all the way up to the mountain and bring you back the same way, right? So this one camp, uh, the train came back, it was a Ben Akiva camp. I think I was all of 16 years old then. Yeah, 16, 16, 16 and a half. And one of the girls' suitcases were left behind. Hmm. So there was a friend of mine and myself, he said, why hold the whole camp back? We sent the whole camp back We'll stay back, we'll wait for the next train to come and hopefully they'll bring the baggage back. So we let the whole camp go back. My brother took charge of it and Ruben and myself stayed back. So we said we're catching the, the next train back. The next train was uh, uh, express train at nine o'clock at night. It's now six o'clock. Mm -hmm. So we're waiting for the train to come back from the hill station, came back, brought the, the suitcase down. But what are we going to do now for three hours? So he says, you know what? There's a river there, let's go and have a swim. Now, mind you, we don't have clothes or towels. We just have a blanket because it was quite cool in the, up there in the mountain. Well, this is six o'clock in the evening. Six o'clock in the evening. You're, and you've got to wait three hours for them to bring back the bag. Yeah. Okay. You have to wait three hours to get the train from Pune to bring us back to Bombay. Hmm. Now we are at the base of the mountain. So you have to, there are two trains. You take a train to this point, which is called Nira. And from here, we catch a toy train up to the mountains. Okay. So the, now we're down here waiting to get back to the main train line to get us back to Bombay. And you have a bag at this point? Yeah, we got the bag. Okay. So we leave it with the station master. He said, we're just coming back. You know, we're going to... So we get there, the water is freezing cold. What is this, a river, a stream? It's a river. Oh. river. Yeah, water is freezing cold, you know. So we go there completely new. There's nobody around there, you know. Hmm. And now we don't have uh, towels to wipe ourselves. So we had the, uh, just our blanket and I had a, a backpack on me, right? So we take the 
blanket, you know, blankets are not very absorbent. No. We wrap ourselves and we wipe ourselves down. And as we come out of the water, one of the locals said, are you guys, are you mad? He said, why? He said, there are poisonous snakes there. See. <laughs> but. No poisonous snakes in the stream. Yeah. So anyway, we said, well, we're lucky anyway. Yeah. So we get there. And to top it all, now the station master comes to us and says, listen, there's a race meeting in Pune. So the train is going to be packed. I would suggest you catch the next train at 11 o'clock, <laughs> which is an all station train. Time for another swim, huh? No. <laughs> uh, it'll get you back to Mumbai at about 3 o'clock in the morning. Gee. So we said, oh, bugger this now. We're not going to take that. So we decided we will take our chances with the 9 o'clock express train. So the train comes and it is packed. If you've seen any movies of the Indian trains. I've seen photographs of trains in India. People sitting on top and hanging on the, on the sides. On the sides and, yeah. and so we managed to get the, the bag through a window on somebody's lap. And they, what? I said, please, please, just keep it. We're getting on the train. So there's Ruben and myself hanging at the door. Now you can picture the door is pushed inside towards the uh, compartment. And I'm holding onto the middle pole and there are people sitting down and my leg is hanging between, between their, their legs in between them. And Ruben is now facing the direction the train is going, right? And his leg is hanging out. Unbeknown, it's an express train. So the station in India, it, the platform tapers and then gets flat. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I hear a scream, my leg. Now I'm holding on to this pole. I said, Ruben, are you all right? He said, yeah, I've just hit my leg on the, on the platform. On the platform. I said, this is broken. He said, I can't feel it. I said, oh my God. Oh, no. So anyway, I said, Ruben, climb on my shoulders and get over the door, which is inside. And the people are coming, I said, don't complain, please. And this is all in the league. He's hurt his leg, you've got to understand. And so Ruben's hanging on to the door. Till we got to the next step was another 20, 25 minutes. It looked like 20 hours for us. It yeah. was just uh, horrendous. But by the time the people got off, a lot of people got off at that station. I looked at his foot, it was just bruised at his heel. It was a close call because many people in India yeah. off the trains with that sort of things and they lose their lives. Jeez. So, stupid things as a, you look back. I, I, I feel like the, the sense I get is that it's kind of impossible to live a, a safe life in India though. Like there, there's just a lot happening. There's a lot of, there's a, there's a lot of life happening in very close quarters all yeah, the time. Yeah, you know, we, we took our chance, but we were also cautious. You know, yeah. Cautious. You know, you know, we were not stupid, but that was a, a very stupid thing for us to be hanging on off a, a train. You know. Yeah. Never, I never did that before. Never did that. Hmm. We just wanted to get home from camp. You know, we were there all day long. You know, waiting at the station. The, the train came from Matran down to Neeral at four o'clock. The bag came down. The next mm. bag came down at six o'clock. We gone for a swim. We had till nine o'clock. We're waiting. We got nothing to do. You know? Right. So you you ended up getting delayed like five hours, and you just wanted to get back to yeah, Bombay. Yeah, yeah. I, I I was wondering though if you if you had uh, added a sort of insight on this because I, I see I I see a lot of um like a, there are a lot of a lot of of, of habits and customs um and and just just sort of uh, cultural practices and understandings. That I that I sort of picked up of my grandparents and and the Sephardi community. We were very very fortunate because our youth was built around the school and the synagogue. This was the Jacob Sassoon Jacob School. Jacob Sassoon School. Yeah. It was a free school. We got a free lunch every day, and we got uh, a cup of milk and an egg every morning. Uh, so that was part of the ritual. The synagogue we never paid any synagogue fees because we were run by the Sassoon Trust. The school was also run by the Sassoon Trust. It was a private school and we never paid fees. Hmm. We only paid for textbooks um, and obviously your exercise books. But um, what it was, the Jewish community lived within that area of Bombay, within a radius of about two kilometers or you know, around that area. Hmm. So you had friends 
let's go down the street, call up the friend, and we've done something or we got together. Now, the grounds over there was only for the Jewish kids. So we were fortunate because the back of the synagogue, we could play cricket. The front of the synagogue, we could play soccer or hockey. And we had the school and the synagogue side by side. Mm. So basically, we'd go to school. We'd meet our friends in school. School would finish about 3.30 in the afternoon. We'd go home do our homework about 4, 4.30. We'd be back in the school grounds. And we'd be playing either cricket or playing um, uh, different Indian games called Gili Dandu or, or uh, with ball games we'd play or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Or we'd go and hire a bike and ride it in the school grounds around the synagogue and all that sort of stuff. You know? So it was sort of a ghetto type of life, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You live in that area and it was, your friendships were there for life. Yeah. It was there for life because you didn't mix with the non-Jews. You never heard of intermarriage. You never heard of it. If it was, it was not mentioned. It was very hush and quiet. Sure. And also I feel like it would have been um, it's taboo. Yeah, but doubly so. I mean, obviously, uh, as as Jews, it's it's uh, it's taboo for us to marry out. But also, lahavdil for like the Hindus to marry out as well is also yeah, taboo. So there were some cases that happened. You know, uh, you know. So but this is uh, it was funny because it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a dumb thing for the most part. And therefore, so, your world was sort of small and contained. Not only that, but because you grew up with your own community. You basically fell in love with a girl from the same school, or right. whatever, you know what I mean? You know, you grew up together, and then you you had a liking for this one, or you like liking for that one, and you know there was puppy love. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, ah, Sammy loves so and so, so and so loves Sammy, or whatever. You know, all these notes would come up. You know, <laughs> it was so childish and you know petty, but it was uh, fun games. You know, Did, were the were the were the boys and the girls educated separately or together? We had co all the way through school. All the way through school. I'm I'm wondering about um, the the way that um, I guess I guess the way that Jewish practice worked back back in India because it seems like there was a lot of like um, r- real uh, zeal and fervor for the Jewish practices for the and for the prayers, but also at the same time a sense of a sense of relaxedness Very with relaxed. how you live how you live your life. We go. After school, we do our homework, and, and generally we don't have uh, dinner till eight thirty, nine o'clock at night. Really? Yeah. Why so late? I'm just going to explain to you. You know what would happen? You'd go home and you'd have a snack mm-hmm. at about four, four thirty. You've done your homework. Four, four thirty. Generally, the parents would be in the coffee house playing backgammon. The mothers were generally at home, and the servants would take the young kids that is just a three, four year old to the school grounds and just let them run around and frolic around. While the, the mothers of the house would be at home either stitching or at least I'm talking from my mother's experience, mm-hmm. would either be sewing the clothes or, you know, all our torn clothes or whatever we mischief we got to or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and the father would come. So what would happen is we would go back to the school grounds to play with our friends, whether we're flying kites or we're playing cricket or we're riding bikes or whatever it was. Yeah. So by the time we'd come home, it will be 7, 7.30, just when it gets in, sort of getting dark. Now, bear in mind, there's also the service in the synagogue. So there was the caretakers of the grounds were uh, the uh, Taliban, the Afghanistanis. They had their quarters there. They were lovely, lovely people. Lovely people. You come in, Shami, what are you doing? You know, like, you know, there's prayers over there. Why are you all making noise over here? You know, because we were, Kids want to play. They want to go to synagogue. (laughs) So this was uh, the whole idea. And then after the synagogue was over, he makes sure that all the doors are locked of the synagogue and he makes sure that everything is safe and kept. They lived within the synagogue grounds. They had a quarter for them to live. The Afghanis. The Afghanis, yeah. This was was, um, on Shabbat or through the week? Every day. Every day. So the service is every day in the afternoon. Every day, every day. Mm -hmm. And there were coconut trees on the ground. So my brother used to climb on his hand. The coconuts are big. He'd climb on a coconut tree and he'd knock off the coconuts and he'd throw it to me and I would hop it like a cricket ball. <laughs> and what we did was really not right because those coconuts were uh, leased out to people who would sell them. You know, the synagogue, uh, the, 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 
the trust funds would get money because these people come once a year or whenever the coconuts were ready and that professional would bring them all down and then take it for sale. Right. But we would bring it before they would come. One tree was very short, it was not too long, but my brother would go up and say, Sam was ready. So one day we knocked up about eight or ten coconuts. And this Afghani person came and said, what are you doing? This is not for you. So we ran and hid it in the school grounds. And did you have your coconuts with you? Or did you have to abandon your coconuts no, when no, you no. fled? No, no, no. We locked it up in the cover. We were not stupid. What, your, your coconuts? The one, that, the, the one that we knocked off the tree. How, how, how are you running away carrying eight coconuts? Well, we had the thing you were running with. Oh, you had like a basket or something? No, no, no. You, the coconuts had a... If you understand, the coconut has like a, a spike at the top. You can hold it. So we uh, was only four or five when we ran <laughs> We ran and locked it in the, in, in the Binyakiba cover. Hmm. Now, he went and complained to the secretary of the synagogue. Now, the secretary happened to be my Hebrew teacher. Hmm. So <laughs> I still remember this because my Hebrew teacher said, uh, came and said, what did you do? He was drinking at us. Like, you know, what are you? He said, no, we only broke a few coconuts, you know. He said, make sure you don't do it again. Okay. We said, okay, okay. We won't do it again. So the next day, Afghanistan goes to my brother because he knew he was there. He says, you know, you broke coconuts. Give me four annas, you know, bakshi. So he gave him four annas. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> that the the bak- bakshish is like a Hindi word, meaning like a gift. Yeah, like a, but, uh, a bribe, we can call it. Not, bakshi, not, not a bribe. It's a token of appreciation. Like right. So, yeah. so I, I feel like, I feel like bakshish... The reason it's it, the word bribe doesn't quite capture no, no, it is it's not, it. It's not bribe. It's not bribe. Well, well, in the in the West, there's a sort of idea that you, you have your your services that you pay for. You have your wages, your fee is finished, and then that's it. And then the law says that like that this is the limitation. Anyone who takes any money further is is Bakshish. has has um. Well, I mean, I guess in 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 the West it's, here in America, there's an idea that right. So that here in America, there's an idea that like. There's a there's there's the the legitimate practice and then like any additional money is either a tip or it's a bribe. Whereas in India, well, sort of everything is done according to like little gifts here and there, yeah, like yeah, the. Con- but there's a lot of bribery that goes on there as well. So that so there's sort of but there's no there's no hard defining line. It's more of like a sliding scale all the way up to the top, right? So so in the same way that he asked, what is it? So an anna's a sixteenth of a rupee. Is that right? Well, yeah, 16 annas made a rupee. It was a British very stupid way of working out. Yeah. And this was one of the stupidities because what happened when they changed to Paise, mm. they, they went to um, decimal currency. Mm. So 100 Paise became 1 rupee, mm-hmm. right? So 25 Paise became, which was 25 Paise was 4 annas. Mm-hmm. So 4 annas, 4 annas, 4 annas, 4 annas, 18 annas, which made 16 annas, 1 rupee, yeah. But... Six paise made one anna. Right. Uh, so if you took one anna and you converted to paise, you got what did you get? You get six paise, right? Yeah. So if you took one four anna and converted it to paise, you got 25 paise. Yeah. So what we would do, we take one four anna and convert it to 25 paise. And then we take the six paise, convert it to one anna, and we got one paise extra. <laughs> Can you understand the logic? Yeah, of this? course. So what we would do, we turned this around, turned this around till we made a few annas, so we could go for a swim. Back day bath. <laughs> <laughs> so one cent at a time. <laughs> yeah, we'd we go from one shop to the other, and you know, we barter. You know, we're basically, I've got this. Uh, Six paise, can you give me one anna? Yeah, give me one anna. So you get four annas. Huh. We convert it to 25 paise. Huh. And we take the 25 paise, convert it to four annas again. <laughs> and we get one paise left over. Right. That's brilliant. So this is what, this is what we used to think. But we didn't have money, you know. We used to try and improvise. Yeah. You you left India at, at 18. You I just passed out of high school. Just just passed out of high school. So, it, I mean, that, that makes it sound like you were in something of a rush to leave. Yes, because uh, it wasn't a rush to leave because what had happened, we were waiting for our papers. And after I passed out high school, our papers came. It came around about November. And I, I passed how, long, how long in advance did you apply for the papers? Do you remember? It took a little while because, you know, the white Australian policy was in place then. Are we talking about months or years? No. What happened, we applied and we didn't hear from them. Mm-hmm. So then we wrote to my sister here in Australia who was already here with my late wife and her family because they came together. 
So then they got on to one of the parliamentarians because they had influence with him. And then he wrote to the commissioner and then we suddenly got a shock when we got it in the mail. So Beautiful. We have been accepted. So do you, was that, was that, do you remember like how, from when you first applied to when you actually got your papers, was that, was that I, I, all within the same year? Do you know? I remember now not. Okay. Now. It would have been about a year. Okay. But when, when it came, I got it in November, the approval, I left in February. Wow. So who, who, who applied for the papers? Was it just for you or for your mother as well? Yeah, the whole family. Whole family. Yeah. And you were, all, why were you all on your way out? Because... After 1947, when India got its independence and Israel got its independence, there was a wave of migration away from India. Hmm. The young were leaving to go to Israel because they felt that was their homeland. Mm-hmm. And some were saying they went to London to better their lives. Yeah. Um, so the parents followed them. So there was this big wave of migration. So I recall when I was eight or nine years old and my father passed away. The community was quite a large community. By four years later, I could feel the dwindling down of the community. There was no more that sort of, uh, you know, people going to Israel. And, you know, it was, it was sort of gradual and yet sudden, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Within a span of 10 years, by the time 66 came and I left, we called it the, we, when I say we, uh, I mean, my, myself and my friend, we called it the year of disintegration because by then, nobody was left. By the time I left... Which year was that? 66. So by 66, it was basically all over. More. When I left, there was still a few handful, but after I left, a lot more left after that. By June, July, everybody left. Right. Hmm. The point that uh, there was nobody left there. I mean, now, nowadays, when you go back to visit, you can see the old synagogue still there, but it's just the caretaker maintaining it, and that's all. No, they've got services. They, you, they, they have services? services? The Israel is under services there. Oh, yeah. Just, actually, just recently, they've renovated the fourth synagogue, the, what they call the Kolaba synagogue, which is that was more affluent. They, the Jews of Kolaba were much more affluent. They went to, you, when you say the fourth synagogue, do you mean the fourth synagogue in Bombay? Bombay. Or, yeah. Bombay. They so, called it the fourth because it was the fourth area during the British Raj. Right. You know, so it's Kolaba Fort, whatever you call So there are still Jews there, but not, not really Baghdadi Jews. There are only a handful of them. Yeah. They're mainly Venezuelan Jews. Do you feel, I mean, this, this might be a bit close to home, but that, that sense that you got of, oh, this community is, you know, that you, could, that you can sort of feel if it's growing or shrinking. Do, how do you feel about today about the Sephardi community here in Sydney? What can I say about the Sephardi community? The, the problem is when I came here, uh, we wanted to um, associate, we, we were lost, if you know what I mean. In India, we had a very tight-knit community. Now, yeah. we come to a country like Australia, so we wanted to identify ourselves somewhere along the lines. And we were very lucky that the Sephardi synagogue was in place. So yeah. we had a Sephardi youth club, and you know we meet friends who came from Calcutta and from Bombay, and some came from Singapore. And we all integrated, because we used to have what we call the... The Thursday night club in the synagogue. Mm-hmm. We used to meet all our friends over there. We'd go on picnics and all that sort of stuff. Today, it's a different world. We wanted to identify, we wanted to keep that culture going, we wanted to maintain what we did in India. And the Sephardi synagogue, we had the same melodies and the same you know, uh, services, etc. We also went to Bin Akiva here, but it wasn't the same. No. It wasn't the same. But our mischievous did not stop here as well. <laughs> some of the Ashkenazis uh, quite a hard time in the sense that uh, they would not understand our sense of humor. But we made some very, very good friends. And even up to today, we've got uh, some very, very good Ashkenazi friends. They still remember us as uh, uh, young. Do you feel like you're finding a lot of people to teach the tunes to so that, that the tunes are maintained? I try. Uh, most of the students are not interested. The ones that I've taught the tunes to carry on our traditions have left for overseas. Mm. All the good ones have left for overseas. They've married some in New York, some in, uh, in Israel. Um, uh, and the Safari show here now, is it still, uh, I think I got the, get the sense that it used to be primarily Baghdadi. Is that still the case? Uh, it is. Uh, it's, it's Baghdadi, but with a mix of Singaporean Baghdadian, Indian Baghdadian, some Calcutta Baghdadian. Hmm. 
but it's it's breaking down a lot because we had also when we came there was a lot of Egyptians, mm-hmm. a lot of Egyptians, but when we arrived in 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 Sydney, my brother and myself and we started to maintain our tunes and we because what was happening then they were using the Porchi, um, Spanish and Portuguese uh, melodies, so we changed that. We brought our the, the Iraqi tunes back. Mm. You know what I mean? And I still recall the first Shabbat that when, by the time I came in February, my brother came in June, he came with a friend. The first Shabbat that they came, we all three went up and read Zemirot. And the rabbi was impressed. Rabbi Silas was completely impressed because he saw these young boys. Because in those days, no young boys were going up to read. Right. It was us. So he quickly got us to become part of, to, to do the services, which we did because we already had the practice from Biniakiva in Bombay. Mm-hmm. We were not shy. We had the confidence already. Who was the rabbi at the time? Rabbi Silas. Rabbi Silas. And where was he from? He was from Calcutta. Okay. So he was familiar with that. So the reason... But, but he, although he was from Calcutta, he also followed the Spanish and Portuguese because he came from London, from London to Calcutta, from London he came. And here. the Spanish and Portuguese style was from London? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. The Egyptians also went with the Spanish and yeah, Portuguese? Yeah, they went with that. Yeah, they went with that. But... but but when you started changing things up, was there much resistance? No, there wasn't. There wasn't a resistance, but it was very uh, evident, particularly in Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. It was very evident in Yom Kippur that we would out, outnumber them, you know, in the sense that we would get our voices going gungo. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and that's uh, you know, so it it maintained that way, but it's again changing, you know. We, Getting now, Rabbi, the current rabbi is Moroccan. While he's maintaining a lot of the, the, the things, there's a bit of Moroccan sort of. His uncle is also Hazan in the synagogue. Mm-hmm. And he's got a beautiful voice and he also sings, but it's not our style. It's not your style. No, yeah. I, I respect whatever it is. And we, we accommodate everything, we take in everything. You know? But even now, Rabbi Shriki, when he reads from the Torah, he reads basically the Iraqi style with the, the, with the tunes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very beautiful. Yeah. Do you, and do, do you have much correspondence with um, other Iraqi Jews around the world? I've been in touch with Sarah Manasseh and Hakam Manasseh, who just recently passed away, but I haven't been much in touch with them. Sarah Manasseh is uh, very much into music and all that. Where, where does she live? She lives in London. And is the, is the, is the Baghdadi community in London there bigger than here? Yes. yes. And, and it, over there, do you know, are the tunes being maintained there? Yes. All ways of doing yes, things? Yes, yes, yes. yes. I, I, whenever I go to London, I feel I'm sort of, I see some of my old school friends over there. And the beauty of of the friendship that we had in India, 50 years on, none of us have changed. Mm. I say not change. We see each other as like, we're back to our childhood days. Yeah. You know? People change in life. We, we develop different styles and we, we adapt to whichever country we are. And, and once I was in Israel and I remember we were at the hotel and a friend was walking at a distance. And I says, Eli, Eli Mundo, he says, Honey Poja, you know, they were nicknames. Mm. We just hugged each other. It was like, I should say, 40 years, mm. nothing. 30 years, nothing. I passed between us. Beautiful. May, may, uh, may you and your friendships and the whole community long endure. Thank you. Yeah. It, it, we had a very, very wonderful childhood over there. Uh, we weren't affluent, but we were happy. Mm. We were very happy. When I came to Australia, I was full of uh, enthusiasm. You know, I still am. I haven't stopped uh, giving all my time to the community here. Uh, and I love it. You know, I love it. Yeah. Give me a headache from time to time, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, may, may you have uh, a lot more love and a lot less headache. Yeah, no, it, it comes part and parcel of the, uh, what I do here, yeah, and I enjoy what I do. So uh, I would like to give you some more details, but it's, uh, there's so much so much to, to talk about, uh, you know. Well, I think, I think for this one, we've done very nicely. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for coming on, Sam. Thank you for having me. God bless. You too.
with thanks to Perrin Walker and Daniel Kenny. This episode was made possible through the nudging of Levi Solomon. Levi, a groisenschkoyach. <laughs>